As a heads up, this episode contains some explicit language and some spoilers of The Five Bloods. In the show notes, it indicates when the main spoilers occur, but we suggest you wait to listen to this episode until after seeing the film if possible. Is it fair to serve more than the white Americans that sent you here? Nothing is more confused than to be ordered into a war to die without the faintest idea of what's going on. I dedicate this next record to the soul brothers of the 1st Infantry Divisions. Be safe. This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today's episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. Today's episode will consist of two parts. First, in honor of the release of Spike Lee's new film, The Five Bloods, we are going to review it and talk about its impact on the film world. Afterwards, we are going to get a bit more in-depth and celebrate black cinema. To lead this discussion are three talented artists. Sebastian Hines is a multi-time guest on ContraZoom who graduated from the National Theatre School. He spent several seasons at Stratford Festival with his latest turn as Ferdinand in The Tempest, which was also filmed and released in theaters. He's a founding member of Outside the March and is currently performing in the Ministry of Mundane Mysteries. Jerome Jarvis studied at both Humber College's Acting for Film and Television program and Sheridan College's Performing Arts Preparation. He has been seen in numerous films like Guard Your Peace and A Home is Mother. Tony Ofori is a graduate of both Humber College's and York University's drama program. He has been seen on stage for Obsidian Theatres Actually, the world premiere of Serving Elizabeth, and as guest appearances on shows like Supergirl and American Gods. He is a featured cast member of Game Time, a sketch comedy show that has previously been featured on ContraZoom. Thank you all for coming on the show. We'll start things off with the new film To Five Bloods, which was just released on Netflix. I'd love to go around and just start out by getting any preliminary thoughts on the film, whether you like it or not, before diving in deeper. Yeah, I really, I really liked the film. Um, one of the things I really liked about it was uh, the flashback sequences. Um, Spike chose not to use um, younger actors for the flashback. He just used the actors, uh, or yeah, the same actors that were playing the older characters, which, um, I mean... When you think about it, in, in building um, a story, one might think that might be confusing, but the structure of it made it all make sense, which uh, that's one thing that really stood out to me. And I'm like, huh, I get it. And like, it doesn't really need to be spelled out for me. And uh, that, it, it, there was just a little thing that I was like, mm, I dig it. I dig it a lot. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump on that. I mean... Um, I didn't really know it for some reason. Okay, so for the record, I thought that there's still like about an hour left. But um, <laughs> I took me like the second set of flashbacks to realize, like I was present watching the movie, but I feel like I was so present that the first flashback I didn't notice it. 
And then the second one, I was like, oh, shit. Oh, that's the same dude from the... Okay, oh. And then I was in it. And then I was, like, even more in it. Um, and I mean, of course, Chadwick Boseman being freaking Chadwick Boseman. Goddamn. Yeah. So he just, he, he just absolutely crushes it. Um, one thing I want to kind of bring up, Delroy Lindo's freaking performance from start. I mean, yeah. I got 51 minutes left, but his his emotional journey. Oh my god. Oh yeah. So good. Like I remember him from from uh, Romeo Must Die. Um, yeah. Other some other parts, but like seeing him bring this level, this caliber. Like I knew he had it in him, but I'm just like, oh yes, like goddamn yes, like it was so good. And I know there's gonna be a huge thing at the end. Um where he's probably gonna have a moment with his son and that's where like it's gonna be like his his that one you know like Tony, you know what I'm talking about, like you know that one monologue where you're like, Oh shit, give this man the award kind of thing. So I'm yeah. waiting <laughs> but even alone already from what I've seen, like he has absolutely crushed it. This he this is probably some of the best acting I've seen from him. Really. You just wait. You just wait. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's coming. Like that that monologue yeah. you're looking for it's coming. there. It's there, okay. Because I'm literally like, my TV is paused right now. Like I, that's right. Like I'm looking at my screen. Like I'm not, I'm not just gonna abandon it. Since we're done this, I'm gonna finish it. Um, but even from just what I've seen so far, it's been, it's been amazing. From everybody, I mean, from everybody involved, but Delroy just brings it to another level. Um, I, uh, I'm gonna be a, a bit of a dissenter, and um, maybe because I do a lot of, a lot of theater, I'm less scared of likely or people you know not passing me in the future yeah. unlike you guys <laughs> um, <laughs> but um i found it to be uh uh I, I i thought it had to i had it had a lot of great things going for it um however i found it to be a bit of an an undisciplined film um i found that there were a lot of scenes that felt like they were being ad-libbed and improvised in the moment um, as if the director had said, I want you guys to kind of talk about this and maybe, you know, sort of throw this thing in there. And so, um, it, when he just left the camera running, uh, I, I found that I would, I would sort of lose the sense of what was really going on in the scene because of that. Mm-hmm. However, um, you know, to, to your point, Tony, I loved, uh, how he'd shift the aspect ratio, um, between everything happening in the today versus everything happening in the past. I just thought it was such a great, um, touch yeah. and and his ability to contextualize the whole conversation with that uh, amazing montage of MLK, Angela Davis, Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, um, and and even giving us all this insight about like people like Milton Olive, uh, who was the eighteen year old who jumped on the grenade. Uh, it, it turns the whole thing into a, a political essay um, that's been um, narrativized. Call it. Uh, I mean, I, I kind of felt like halfway through, I was like, I think I would most enjoy this movie as a comic book. Mm. Mm. So, you know, uh, um, and at two and a half hours, I did feel like it was it was a little long. Uh, whereas, you know, if you're reading a comic book, you can, you can fly through it as fast as you want. Right. I mean, like, I don't think Spike has ever done a film under two hours. I think that's just his thing. Because <laughs> he's like, I'm yeah, uh, this is what I'm doing. I can shut the fuck up. And you're just like, it's like, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? But he always does bring, like, bring that raw. Yeah. But I definitely, yeah, I think, I don't think I've ever seen a Spike Lee movie that's been under two hours. But yeah. usually by the end of it, you're like, oh, shit. The reason why I didn't mind it was so long because I was watching, um, um, uh, Delroy's, 
uh, emotional journey, like his mental breakdown, which again, in, in uh, amongst Afri- African American or African Canadian or Black, period, uh, <laughs> amongst our culture, uh, mental illness is not really spoken about. True. And, and uh, even in the movie, uh, a bunch of times he's like, what do you mean see somebody? We don't do that. Like, I don't do that. Like, I ain't going to see nobody. Like, no, you need help. Like, you need to see somebody. No, we don't do that. And that's kind of the mentality uh, that us black folks really have surrounding about mental illness, which is starting to change slowly as we bring awareness to it. But it's very much um, the black experience surrounding that. And uh, yeah, exactly. Very like hush hush too. I mean, on my so I'm I'm mixed race. Uh, my dad is uh, German. Uh, my mom is Jamaican, and I've always noticed on the Jamaican side, there's a real quietness about mental illness, disease, all of those things. Um, where that stems from, I'm not totally uh, sure, uh, but it is something that, um, yeah, you know, uh, deeply deeply affects the community. Uh, and as we see in the movie, uh, it. it them. I found it interesting to your point, Tony, that you know he, he does. They don't talk about his mental illness, but they talk about everything else. Yeah, right. They go into so much detail about everything else. So I think that that's an, an interesting, an interesting use of uh, of screen time. That uh, this thing that causes damage and so much plot drive doesn't get talked about. Mm-hmm. And I kind of think that was the, I think that was the point to to really kind of shed light and really I don't want to use the word exaggerate but but really push forward I'm gonna use the term push forward the whole stigma with the black community and the whole mental illness thing so like I think he like he did it on purpose but I think he, like he really pushed it just so you can kind of like the same thought you just had like where it was like we're, we've been here for two and a half hours and we still haven't talked about the elephant in the room why aren't we mm-hmm. talking about the elephant in the room but that's how it is. Especially for a lot of like young, like young black men, like a lot of us, like a lot of us will have some problems. Right. But we've just been so conditioned. We've been raised and so conditioned to not talk about it, or to talk it under the rug, or to swallow it and hold it deep inside until one day it's going to explode. And then you know, what I mean? and then you're doing something that you may or may not regret, whatever the case is. But I feel like it's for us. And then like like Tony said, going back to sorry, excuse me, it's what you said, Tony, where it's like, um, like now it is starting to change because. I mean, again, we are going to be the generation to change things, but even as change is coming about and like coming with it, it's still really weird. I've had some of my friends just come to my house at one in the morning and cry. I'm like, what the hell? Like, just I open the door and they're crying. I'm like, what's going on? And they're just on my couch crying. And it'll take like four hours before they even say something mm-hmm. because it's becoming such like a prevalent thing. So, I mean, I, I think, I think he really, he did it on purpose and I'm actually glad he did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So some older generations watch it, they're kind of like, huh, yeah, you know what, that is, that is kind of true. Maybe I should really change my, my, my thought process and my, my train of my, the way I think about that. And maybe, you know what, let me check in with my, my son, my nephew, my grandson, my whatever. And hopefully, I mean, hopefully that happens. But, and it's yeah. funny because Spike is the older generation, right? Yeah. Even he's noticing the divide. Yeah, yeah. Something, something I wanted to highlight that I thought was really impressive were his use of uh, uh, his use of stage picture, yeah. So me me coming from theater, I mean, I just I, I love a, a 
I love a good stage picture, guys. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he, he, he seems to pull from people like Kurosawa, um, who could fit, you know, six, seven people on a screen, no problem, and have and tell a story in the way that six of them react to one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and even with that montage at the beginning of all the all these great shots from the Vietnam War of, mm-hmm. of black soldiers, I felt like Spike was actively bringing those to life throughout the film. You know, um, one person lying on the ground, one person standing up, one person with, you know, a hand on a shoulder or something. Uh, and, and just let the camera take, take that in while they're talking. Right. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. That's interesting. I kind of want to throw something yeah. to the group. Uh, one thing I kind of noticed was this, you know, three parts of the story where the idea of American exceptionalism, which is what we've kind of had to witness through the media of, growing through the past forever, really, uh, of the Vietnam War and how that's perceived. But then also, this is a group of black soldiers, so they have to also grapple with the way they were treated when they came home and the continuing treatment that they had. But then the third portion of this was they were traveling back to Vietnam and having to kind of grapple with the horrors that that community also had to face. So it was all three things going on sort of at the same time, which was a lot of layers and subtext. I was just wondering if any of you had any thoughts of, of sort of how that is played out. Um, I felt, I felt really, uh, it was painful for me, uh, just like trying to understand the experience. So there, there's a group of um, black men, um, ancestors, taken from their homeland, brought to the Americas. And now they've been ordered to fight in the fight for this country that has enslaved their people. Um, so they're fighting for a cause. They don't even know what they're fighting for, but the whole the whole purpose is survival, right? So they're there, they're killing. Everybody's getting shot and killed because... A, I have to be here because my country sent me here or the country which has claimed me now, uh, has sent me here. And in order to go back home or home, I need to stay alive. So to stay alive, I, I kill and follow orders. And then I go back home, like for a country that doesn't respect me, that doesn't even know my name, that treats me like shit anyways. But in order to like live, I need to kill people and follow orders, do as I'm told. And then I'm sent back um to the americas treated like shit like i didn't just surf and and like fight a war to save everybody's ass like i didn't put my ass on the line for you people who treat me like shit and now like i go back to uh vietnam and people are hitting on me they identify me as the american but i'm i'm not the american i'm i was stolen from my land and brought here to fight for the americans like I'm just as much a minority as you are, but I needed to survive. And surviving meant I had to had to fight in war. And fighting in the war meant some of your people had to die. It's just like um, helplessness of these um, black individuals um, because there's no there's no uh, there's no alleviation. There's no 
they're they're responsible for things that they're not responsible for because they're the face on the poster type thing. And that was hard to watch because um, it wasn't their choice to be in the war. It wasn't their choice to be there. He just needed to stay alive. And I feel that's why the camaraderie between the five was so strong because they made a pact to stay alive and to survive this um, as black brothers, you know? Um, and they did it for each other, not for the country, but for the camaraderie and for, for the brotherhood. Um, and still the world looks at them some type of way for them. It's, it's just kind of really sad for me. I couldn't have said that better myself, really. I think, uh, there, there, there are a couple things that, that popped out at me that I thought, um, spoke to your question, Dakota. Um, you know, one, one thing was this was this great this great scene where uh, it's a flashback, so it's in that other aspect ratio, and uh, there and Spike is introducing us a bit more to um, to Norman's character. Uh, it's around the time where you know they're showing that he was really politically minded, and um, and as they said, uh, he was he was our Martin and our Malcolm. Um, and you and you're coming to understand how much they revered this guy for his political ideals. Anyway, at one point they're they're walking. Oh, and they say he's like one of the best damn soldiers ever. Yeah. Anyway, they're walking. Um, they're they're uh, they're walking through this this forest, this grassland, and uh, you can hear the Viet Cong soldiers. And what's done that I've never seen anywhere else is um, so they're preparing to like to ambush them. But Spike has actually given subtitles to the Viet Cong soldiers. Mm-hmm. And they're talking. They're they're talking about the most whimsical, beautiful, poetic thing, which yeah. is like love letters and um, the girlfriend and wife and like like their people back home, and uh, and it's cut off by you know them ambushing them and just lighting them up. Yeah. And I thought that that was the most perfect way to um, to show uh, two groups of people who both have fears. Uh, beautiful ideals and personal lives um, going to war with each other for no good reason uh, mm-hmm. and extinct, extinguishing life uh, because of it. And you know, and, and, and you actually just kind of, what, what I was going to say too, is if we're always, anytime war is brought up, our leaders are always going to train us to be like, no, you know, God is your enemy. They hate you. They want to kill you. But for me, what that team spoke to one of my favorite war films of all time is Saving Private Ryan. I will forever love that film. Mm-hmm. That that film was just beautiful. But it kind of reminded me of Saving Private Ryan, where you know they're always going to talk about, hey, you know, when all this is done, I'm just going to get home to my girl, or I'm going to get home to my family, or to my kids, or whatever, whatever. And at the end of the day, we're all just you know simple men. But it's like we've now been conditioned that you know, okay, so I'll just because I'm, I'm just looking at your face, I'm going to say you. So like, like you know, hey, but no, that guy hates me, so I have to kill him. But at the same time, you're just like, hey. This guy hates me, so I gotta go kill him. But we just wanna hopefully have the situation end so we can just go back home and get to what we were doing. You know what I mean? So it kinda that scene really kinda showed me that nobody ever really wants to go to war. We're right. convinced that we wanna go to war. Right. And that we have to go and fight, we have to go and defend our country and those ideals. But a lot of time it's like, hey, you know what? It's a shitty situation. I got drafted. Yeah, hey, you know what? We're in X country or X place or whatever. And it's like, hey man, I really just can't wait till all this argument with them, but you just get back home to my family, my girl, my kids, whatever. You just get back home. Mm-hmm. What's 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 familiar to me in that peaceful time. Mm-hmm. 
And I love the way, and like I like Sebastian, you're saying, I love the way that Spike did it. Because even like, like Norm's ready to go. He's ready to get his <laughs> up. Like the moment he takes that knee, he's giving the hand signal, thumbs and the stuff. He's yeah. ready. Mm-hmm. Right? And then, but you can even kind of see, if you kind of look at some of the, the facial expressions of the rest of the troops, they still kind of have that little bit of reservation. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, what the hell are we doing here? But okay, we got a job to do. And then they light them up kind of thing. Right? And, and then, you know, I agree. I love the way Spike did it because I feel like it really gives the ac- accurate depiction of what war really does mean to just a, well, I'm putting it in quotes, the average soldier. Mm-hmm. Because I'm pretty sure even in some of the wars that we're fighting now, we have troops that are like, what the hell am I doing here? Like, mm-hmm. really, really, what the hell am I doing here? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, Jerome, because, um, you know, even out of what's happening in the States, when, you know, uh, there were military jeeps going through American streets um, uh, enforcing curfew and uh, protesters, um, you know, shuttering themselves in people's houses and um, getting shot up with rubber bullets and things like that. Um, you know, people looked at the military and and wondered what the military, how they felt, uh, because because you know, as you've seen America's military leaders saying, like, uh, and ex-military leaders like Madison, people saying that. Um, uh, martial law is, is wrong. We are like the the American military serves, but should not be ser- serving against its own people. Yeah. Um, and so I think, uh, yeah, I think that really speaks to right now. Soldiers going, what? Who am I serving? What? What purpose am I serving um, by by being deployed against my my own citizens? Yeah. Um, there was a, there was an image in the movie that I wanted to bring up. Jerome, I know you're going to get to it. Um, I, uh, Tony, I just, I would, I would just, I'd love to just get your take on it. Um, it's a total spoiler. Dakota, am I allowed to give away spoilers? What's, what's the word on that? Uh, this movie just came out. If you can, if you can dance around it a little bit, I think that'll be good. I'll probably put a warning at the beginning that if you haven't seen the five bloods, you might want to watch it first. Uh, so if you're able to dance around it a little bit, while still describing it. I think it would probably be. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I it, it's uh, it's a you know what I can't. <laughs> okay, okay. How about this? I can't. How do I thread this needle? Forget about it. If you haven't seen the Five Bloods yet, uh, fast forward just a little bit. I'll leave timestamps in the show notes, uh, and then we're going to wrap up this conversation. So, if Sebastian, if this wants to be your your final thought on this, that'd be great. Yeah. So very quickly, it's um, it's that image um, at the end after the big firefight um, uh, between you know John Renault's character, the Rush, and, and everybody, uh, yeah. and he's he's lying there dead. He's wearing a full white suit, right, mm-hmm. and uh, and he's got the his sort of Vietnamese soldiers behind him, mm-hmm. uh, and he's been perfectly laid out so that he's he's lying, and then on the uh, like on the other side of him, almost like a mirror image is Otis, Clark Peters' character. Yeah. And Clark Peters' character, he's okay. He's looking up at um, David and, and Eddie. Mm-hmm. And and I found that to be a really powerful image because it was like the, the French white colonialists mm-hmm. backed up by, you know, the people who were serving him mm-hmm. all dead. And then um, uh, Otis's character alive um, being backed up by the live next generation. Uh, of David and Hetty, who you know are we're looking at as an interracial couple. Um, I was wondering if you, what what you took from that. Nice. 
nice. I actually never put that connection together. I, um, I, w- I was looking at it as uh, the, the colonizer um, being the reason why everybody's in, in that shit. Mm. The reason why everyone is there is because of this one, one body. Mm. Which, like, even though he's now dead, like, they're still left to deal with uh, the setup yeah. and everything that, um, everything that took place uh, in that. Even though it's it, even though he's dead, there's still the shadow. There's still there's still the the vibration of everything that that he did uh, before that, right? Um, yeah, that. But I never like. You, you're right. You do like the you like the stage pictures. That was definitely <laughs> stage that was it. Yeah. But, yeah, but that 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 key that key to it of the colonizer at the center is really really interesting. Yeah, we, I think that we we forget about the role of colonization and all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, yeah, yeah, that's excellent. Thanks. Awesome. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much. So, The Five Bloods is now streaming on Netflix. So, if you haven't seen it yet, please check it out. We're going to take a short break, and after we're going to be celebrating some other notable black films as another guest joins the show. <laughs> Where are you headed to? I'm going to get a slice. You going down the south? I gotta make the deliveries and I'll check you back there, right? The rebound. Back. All right. Oh shit. Let me check it out. That's the hype. Newest latest. Let me tell you the story of right hand, left hand. It's a tale of good and evil. Hey. It was with this hand that Cain iced his brother. Love. These five fingers, they go straight to the soul of man. The right hand, the hand of love. The story of life is this. Static. One hand is always fighting the other hand. And the left hand is kicking much ass. I mean, it looks like the right hand love is finished. But hold on, stop the presses, the right hand's coming back. Yeah, he got the left hand on the ropes now, that's right. Yeah, ooh, it's a devastating right and hate is hurt. He's down, ooh, ooh, left hand hate, KO'd by love. If I love you, I love you. But if I hate you, there it is, love and hate. I love you, bro. Best. Wait, Raheem, check the lane. Peace. Along with Sebastian, Tony, and Jerome, we are now also joined by Muna Trare. Muna is a graduate of University of Toronto and starred on Murdoch Mysteries and In Contempt, and has been seen on shows such as Condor, American Gods, Hemlock Grove, and much more. She has most recently been seen in the miniseries Self Made, inspired by the life of Madam C.J. Walker. One reason I wanted to have this discussion is that in the beginning of June, The Help became the most viewed movie in one week. This is a movie that tells the story of a white woman documenting the struggles of black maids in the South from her perspective. One of the film stars, Bryce Dallas Howard, came out and stated the following. I've heard that The Help is the most viewed film on Netflix right now. I'm so grateful for the exquisite friendships that came from the film. Our bond is something I treasure deeply and will last a lifetime. 
This being said, The Help is a fictional story told through the perspective of a white character and was created by predominantly white storytellers. We can all go further. She then provided a list of films and TV shows that people should check out. The website Slate asked more than 20 prominent filmmakers, critics, and scholars, including Ava DuVernay, Charles Burnett, Gina Prince-Blythewood, Julie Dash, Franklin Leonard, and Henry Louis Gates Jr. for their favorite movies by filmmakers of color and used their picks to shape a list of the 50 greatest films by black directors. This list includes 12 Years a Slave, Boys in the Hood, Daughters of the Dust, Eve's Bayou, Fruitvale Station, Malcolm X, Selma, and more. Before we get into the group's individual picks, I was wondering if you all can share either the first time you noticed a film that was made by a black filmmaker, or the first time you sought out such a film and the effect that it had on you, and if you have any thoughts on the help in Slate's list. Huh, I wonder what the first black... Ah, uh, yeah, it would have to be uh, Do the Right Thing. Yep. Yeah, it would have to be that. Um, uh, I grew up watching those hood movies and, like, you know, Boys in the Hood and all those... All those stuff. So, like, um, do the right thing. Um, looking at uh, uh, the color that Spike used um, in that film and the message behind it, that's what really like piqued my interest. Like, it's just like, oh, it's a, it's a color. It, it's a story about me by me. This is this is great. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pay attention to this. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think the the first uh, yeah the first time for movie for me was Lo- Love and Basketball, nice. um, came out in two thousand uh, with um, Shana Lathan and uh, Omar Epps, um, and uh, it was it was really man it, you know that, like in two thousand I guess I was like eleven, so it was like coming up right at the time when I was just thinking a lot about <laughs> about love and. Mm-hmm. romance and um uh and it's yeah it's just such a such a captivating story um and uh yeah i mean i also think for me anyway you know i grew up in Roncesvalles, which is uh predominantly polish and sort of eclectic um yeah pr- predominantly caucasian neighborhood in toronto um and uh I just wasn't, I just wasn't surrounded by a lot of black culture, to be honest, um, growing up. And so, um, all black movies and, and, uh, and black music was, were, were some of my first opportunities to interact with black culture outside of my uh, Jamaican family. Right. For me, I, uh, I was exposed to black films from such a young age because um, my father would always take us to Blockbuster and my sister and I would rent a movie and then he would rent a movie and often we'd like sneak in and watch his film. So uh-huh. I can't really pinpoint like the first time I saw a film that was directed, written and starring black people because I mean, we were also watching African movies from such a young age. So yeah. it was always part of our household. But um, going back to whether or not we saw the help and how we feel about the help. I definitely haven't seen the help. I have the book, haven't read it for the very reasons why Bryce Dallas Howard stated that it's kind of a problem that it's the most watched film on Netflix during this time period um, because it's, it's not by us and it's not for us. And um, I'm someone who I'm very mindful about how I consume media that deals specifically with the black experience 
and I'm not interested in seeing it through the lens of whiteness, at least at this stage of my life. I, I, I saw the help and um, I don't know, I was groaning the whole time. Uh, I'm just very tired of hearing about um, the whole black slave story. Yeah. So much to us. Like we built fucking empires for crying out loud. Excuse my language. You know, <laughs> it seems to be the only, I mean, sorry, Tony, I got minutes to just take that and kind of roll with it. Um, like we were kings and queens and we built empires, but the only thing that always keeps getting brought up is slavery and the, the slave experience and all that stuff. And I mean, I understand it's a very important part of our history because of, you know, obviously what happened in 400 years. And I mean, I can talk about that some in the space, but it's like we, like we did other things. So I'm kind of annoyed of seeing that constantly portrayed in the media, in the media. Cause like mm-hmm. we've seen it, we know what happened. And that's not, and I swear to God, I swear to God, I just realized how I found it. It's not to diminish it at all. It's just that, Let's talk about other things that we did. You know what I mean? There's so many more other things that we did. We don't have to always keep going back to that to that thing. You know what I mean? Right. And I think it has a lot to do with who's telling the story and their comfort level with how they see uh, people of color and black and brown bodies. I think that a lot of white people who are producing these movies are comfortable with certain narratives. Mm-hmm. And Amen. they're not necessarily the ones that are the most empowering to us. Amen. Preach. Um, you know, who... Who do they consider their audiences to be, Amen. right? Uh, and 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 who um, who do they feel responsible to as well? You know, if you if you feel responsible to white audiences, then you know that's that's your paradigm. But if you feel responsible to young black children and how they're viewing themselves as they're growing up and what their worth is and what uh, what what could be for them in their life, then uh, yeah, that's, uh, I think that that shifts the kind of stories that you want to tell. Right. And how you tell them. All right. Uh, so I guess uh, we'll get started off with uh, Jerome talking about the movie that he wants to uh, bring to the table. So Jerome, over to you. Um, and I mean, like we already really started talking about it. I know you spoke about it. The very first film for me, um, and it's a film that I watch at least every two months, is uh, Do the Right Thing. One of my favorite spike joints. Um, because it's it's crazy. Like how many times you can watch that movie, and it's like no matter how many times you watch that movie. Things that are happening in that movie are still happening today. So it's just, even though it was made in 89, and we're in the year 2020, and it's still so relevant. And it's like, it's like sometimes you watch it the right thing, and then turn on the news, and you're like, what's the difference? Right. Right. And it's like, Spike has done so many examples, like, especially when he made Bamboozled, but he, like, he's done so many examples in his films of, you know, the constant problem that's plaguing us. And it's like, here, you have this evidence of, like, hey, this is what's wrong. This is what's going on. But it's like, it never ever changes, and one thing for me, because I know I I feel sorry, not I know I have some analogy, but I feel like there's there's always going to be some people who may look at black films and you know some of the films and stuff that we're doing and look at it a certain way where like as if we're just trying to complain. Where one of the really key points of doing the right thing that always stuck out for me is the love and hate monologue with the love and hate ring, right? Because like that whole monologue thing is like, listen, like we're not necessarily trying to cause a fight. We're just trying to get you to wake up and pay attention to what the hate is doing to the love and what the love can do to the hate. Mm-hmm. And just how it was on single shot, just love and hate, you know, like not even really close up on the face, close up on the fist. And, you know, and he's going and he's doing the whole thing. That's not the most simplistic yet brilliant example of, hey, just listen to what we're saying. 
we're trying to say, listen, there's a lot of hate going on, beating us down, beating us down, beating us down, but then the love can come back in and heal us. And it's just, it's so simplistic. I, I mean, I already, I know I said it's on this screen, it's so simplistic, yet it's so genius. And that's why it always sucks to me. And that's, that's just, it's just one of the, for me, one of the best films ever made. Yeah, I, I, I found that movie, uh, yeah, to be, to be a bit of a game changer. Um, and one of the first times that I really noticed a director's style, you know, like you were talking about, like, kind of shots that he pulled and we were just talking about you know five bloods and he you know he's still pulling those same shots uh and um and they're still you know remarkable to watch the thing for me so personally watching that movie though i was so uh affected by it at the end when he what what does he throw through the he throws the garbage can through the oh, yeah. through the yeah. glass it was it was um it was like a such a revolutionary and emotionally impactful moment um, for me personally because it felt like the antithesis of doing the right thing or at least what we're taught as doing the right thing. Yeah. Doing the right thing is supposed to be the peaceful protest. It's supposed yeah. to be the turn the other cheek. And in that moment, this rage turns into an- anarchy and chaos. Um, and, uh, and I remember after watching that just being shaken thinking that's such a scary world. Yeah. But, you know, like you said, Jerome, um, it, it, you know, you can, you can watch that movie and it, and it's being spoken about in the news. And right now it seems like the, the conversation so many people, especially like all over the world, but especially in the States are having is like, what is the role and the form of protest that will actually change things? Yeah. Um, right. You, you know what I mean? No, no, I'm asking you, and you just said it, and you know, you just brought up a really important point. One thing that, I mean, after, I mean, I've seen the movie, God knows how many times, but it took me at least sometimes watching it to really kind of, and I mean, I think this is how I interpreted it, that the way that they started off with this heat wave, and this heat wave that's just beating down, yeah. and it's so unbearable, that it's like more or less like a metaphor of like, that heat wave is actually like that oppression, like beating down on everybody. Uh-huh. To the point, and then at the end when the whole garbage can comes into play, it's like the heat wave and everything that's going on and you know, people are freaking out yeah. and heat wave explodes and then that's when the garbage can comes in. And I feel like that's why it's so much more there's just so much more weight to that moment. And I you know, I completely forgot about that until you brought it up. And um but it took me so many times watching that movie to be like, Oh snap, the heat wave is like the oh, oh I missed okay, yeah, I got it, I got it, I got it. And my dad's like, You never took that idea, I was like, nah, like I just look at it yeah. and he's like, What's wrong with you? But like it's but it's crazy because like it doesn't matter what spike movie you watch really sometimes you gotta watch it more than once to really kinda get into his mind like, Oh, snap, that's what he was talking about. You know what I mean? And it's like he just he does such a good job of it that it's crazy. It's it's, it's crazy. Repeat after me. I will deny all rights of access or entrance. I will deny all rights of access. Let's Estrada had them all take a solemn oath. Lock it up! Lock it up! Stop the murder madness, or there would be no more pope. The situation's out of control, because I'm in front of an empty stripper pole. That's right. You get snug. I, uh, wa- um, one of the films that I really like, uh, Black Witten by, um, Spike, uh, I guess it's not um, written, it's adapted. It's called uh, um, Chirac. Um, this is an adaptation of uh, The Trojan Woman. 
which is uh, a part of the uh, Euripides uh, trilogy, um, which is like, I don't know, man. There's something about Greek tragedies. Like, I love that shit. I I, I read all of them, and, like, I'm such a fan of the gods, and um, I know which one I would be if I could be one, and obviously the god of alcohol, right? Because, you know... And that name, Odysseus, is, is the bomb anyways. Um, so, yeah, uh, for those who aren't familiar with uh, the Trojan woman, it's um, the battle between the Trojans and uh, uh, the, Spart- the Spartans. And um, the women decide to go on a sex strike um, so that the men will put down their arms um, so it's um, a strike for peace, essentially, um, using the restraint of sex. And um, this was um, amazingly done uh, in Chicago. Um, so the nickname for Chicago or Chirac or, or Chi-Town because um, a lot of deaths happened in Chicago comparable to what happened in um, Iraq. And the government doesn't feel a need to do anything about it. Uh, Kanye is from Chicago, and he has uh, many verses that um, speak about how problematic it is that the government does nothing about um, the, the gun violence that's happening in Chicago. But it's yeah, really bad. So um, it, it's perfectly set. Chicago. It stars um, Nick Cannon, um, who plays the leader of a gang, and. Something else that's super beautiful about this piece, it's it's done completely in rhyme. Um, so all the dialogue, all the monologues are all in rhyme, like from beginning to start. And we have a Samuel Jackson who plays um, the chorus or the narrator who um, shows up in different suits and, and different parts of the, of the movie to kind of guide us through um, this kind of uh, anti-sex uh, protest. Um, and yeah, I really like it um, because of uh, Spike's ability to um, turn something that was historically popular and modernize it um, so accurately and add like uh, different artistic flares to make it interesting, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, I should watch it. Is this a movie that anyone else in the group had seen? No, I haven't seen it, but I've definitely heard a lot about it. I don't want you hanging out in the streets. I want you to finish school. Because without an education, the only kind of work you're going to get is selling drugs, pimping women, or working security for Eddie Murphy. So the movie I chose, it's definitely not like my favorite movie or a movie that I think is the most important. It's just a movie I wanted to talk about. Uh, it's Don't Be a Menace in the Central While Drinking Your Juice in the Hood um, <laughs> by uh, what well, stars all the Wayans brothers. And I think that um, when I was a teenager, it was just so impactful because I'm somebody who loves comedy. I grew up on Mad TV and in Living Color. So um, when we're speaking about things that impact me, uh, I am the most affected by comedy. When somebody gets me to laugh at myself or at my own beliefs uh, and gets me to sort of think about them differently, that's what I find the most meaningful. 
And so this film is a parody of a bunch of different um, black films. So Boys in the Hood, um, Menace to Society, and I think something called The Rim. I, or I can't remember what. Above the Rim. Above the Rim. Yeah. And um, it basically creates these like these really over the top characters who are hyper masculine, uh, very stereotypical in the way that they present. And it's not only like making fun of the ways in which black men are portrayed in these sort of iconic black films that are more contemporary, but then also a critique on society and the way that we interact with blackness, black men. Um, and I don't know, there's just so many levels to it the more times I see it. And I die laughing every single time. I don't know. Have you guys seen the film? Yeah. yeah. One of my favorites. Yeah. yeah uh, I mean, the it's so masterful in the way that it does the bait and switch all the time. Yeah. Every time you think you're getting one thing, they flip it and you get another. And um, so I remember, I don't know if Dakota and Sebastian were in the class, uh, Mr. Johnson's grade 10 comedy class, but I actually showed that film in our high school comedy class. <laughs> I remember feeling like nobody got it. Nobody understood it. Amazing. Do you guys remember in, that? I, I was in that class, yeah. I don't know if I was there that day, though. Um, but, you know, the, there's this one scene, I remember showing it in class, and I, I thought it was freaking hilarious. And I don't think that, like, uh, the demographic in the class could maybe appreciate it, but it's the scene <laughs> where there's, like, a young guy and these thugs are talking to him, and they're like, once we jump you in, there's no going back. Like, oh. they're telling him that they're going to jump him in and whatever, because yeah. that's the term used for when you when someone is initiated into a gang. Yeah. And so they're giving him this speech or whatever, and then it cuts to a wide shot, and it's they're doing skipping rope, and they're doing, like, double dutch, <laughs> and nice. it's, like, it's, like, super, like, they're yeah. in an alley, and it's super dark and serious, but, like, I love those juxtapositions. I love how playful and fun it is, and how it's laughing at not only ourselves, oh, but yeah. the way that, like, outsiders view us. Right. What's up? I'm ready to go jump this fool in. Let's do this, out, dog. What's up there, little homie? About ready to do this? Yeah, man, I'm ready. What's up? What's up? You've been hanging with the homies in the hood for a while now. It's about time we jump your punk ass in. That's right. Let me tell you something. In this world, if you can't swim, you found the drizzle. Yeah. And if you fall, you better pick your punk ass up. That's right. And the rest of y'all, don't cut him no slack. Y'all fools get busy. Let's go. Working, dog, working. Um, I mean, I didn't really make any notes about what I wanted to talk about specifically about the film, but it's, it's everything that I love, like being able to um, take something that we see all the time, which is like that trope of like the black man who's upset because he didn't have a father and they keep going back to that. And then every so often, Keenan Ivory Wayans comes in and goes, message! <laughs> because... Because in those movies, they're trying to hammer down, hammer home a message. And so yeah. um, 
yeah, the film, like, you know, the, the, the one-on-one conversation with Pop, like, and we still see that in films. Yeah. Oh, I might watch that tonight. Yeah, me too. It's <laughs> very difficult to find online. I have it on VHS. I don't even have it on DVD. The Color Purple. An American story for the whole world. It's about life. It's about love. It's about us. You will always remember, Mr. Shook. Old Mr. Nettie. Harple. Squeak. Sophia. And Seeley. I've got the, uh, the, the big serious movie. Yeah, um, so. So when so when uh, when I was a kid, we had like you know uh, all these VHSs, and I would I don't know what it was with me, but I would just I would just like stare at the VHS boxes for like ages. I just like sit by the television. I wouldn't even turn it on. I would just look at the VHS boxes, and the one that I spent um, probably the most time just kind of staring at and like looking at the pictures and sort of thinking about was was the color purple. Um, and, uh, you know, have, having like a, a dad who's white and a mom who's black, uh, as I said before, like my, uh, the things that I pulled from in popular culture and, and media and cinema, um, you know, like it, it, I, I had a lot to choose from basically, uh, because also my parents grew up in the sixties and seventies. And, and so like it, it, it felt like things that were um very black in my household um i uh, i gravitated extra towards them um and i remember watching color purple with my mom and it was the first time that i'd seen uh uh like a like a heroine um who goes through such a such a, a difficult epic um trial um and and I I would just want to point out the term epic because I a, a lot of the black movies that I watched when I was a teenager were things like like Barbershop and things like that and like most most of those movies are sort of about like one day you know you've got like one day to get like all the money and uh and and, and like make everything right and it's sort of a cast of characters who you know usually center around a business or something um in a community whereas um. Color Purple, which is written by Alice Walker, um, she won the Pulitzer Prize for it, and um, she is she's a black writer. Uh, I just seemed to grab grab the country um, or grab the world and and give them this forty year long epic. Um, I love epics. I love stories that span decades. Um, I love like Forrest Gump is one of my favorite movies, um, and uh, uh, Legends of the Fall. Um, like I really like movies that that um, show us a lot, a lot more. And I felt like with Color Purple, um, I got so deeply entrenched in the this harrowing story um, that by the end of it, I don't know. I just I felt um, this is going to sound strange, but like I kind of looked at my mom differently 
uh, and uh, I, I was doing a little bit of reading about about the movie, and you know, people pointed out the fact that Steven Spielberg directed it, and it was you know adapted by um, uh, a white a, a, a white writer, um, and so you know you you could say it's actually not a black lens, but but I think that the the black lens of Alice Walker remains true inside of it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, yeah, that, that, that movie, I don't know. It, 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 it's always seemed to stick with me and, um, for better or for worse. I mean, it could very well become one of those stories that we, we try not to look back on because it, it pushes a, a narrative, um, or, or a lens or a stereotype. However, from doing a bit of reading about it, I, I, I learned that, um, it's an important document actually for a lot of, uh, black queer, um, uh, queer women, um, which, which, which I, which I find interesting. Uh, and what the fact you, that I, it, it, in 1985. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that this story kind of pops up again and again, and, um, Cynthia Arrivo, uh, won a Tony award for it. Um, when they made it into a musical on Broadway, uh, it, it seems to be this story that comes again and again and again. And, um, yeah, I, I think that, I think it's nice that epicness also has a place in the, in the, in the pantheon. Yeah. I think that, um, how you contextualize a film like that is very different than how you would contextualize it if it was produced in like 2020, because in 1985, like the number of, Films with black female leads that were that originated um, from black uh, off like text written by black authors was so minimal. So yeah. I think that um, you know the notion that we were previously talking about of not really wanting to engage with um, with films and televisions that is that comes through a lens of whiteness. I think me myself was talking more of like in contemporary times because I mean back in 1985 getting something like that made that's the only way it was going to get made and oh, so it's still critically important um, right. for for us as storytellers uh, whereas you know as we've moved along and have had so many more oh. black filmmakers writers creators in our industry um, it becomes more and more important to make sure that the gaze remains authentic and we have the opportunity to get that done. Yeah. So that's, that's sort of why I see it differently because uh, in 2020, I can actually choose. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point. Yeah. Um, I, I believe that it was, I believe in 1985, it was actually, it was produced by Quincy Jones yeah. among other people. And yeah. so, you, you know, yeah, you did do the soundtrack. Yeah. So um, it, it's interesting to see throughout, you know, throughout history, like how many people involved have have uh, are people of color, right? And so, like you've zoomed to like you know, Black Panther came out in what twenty nineteen, yeah, right. And you see how across the board the team um, uh, are people of color, and uh, versus nineteen eighty five when you know some some of the most prominent people involved uh, were were white people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, that, yeah, I I, I I I think you make a great point, Muna. That um, that our image of it shifts um, because of the time period that it came out. 
going back to this idea of Bryce Dallas, how we're talking about how people can do better were as far as this type of media that you're consuming. I love to sort of open up the floor of any other suggestions of movies that either are inspiring, whether it's movies or TV shows or, or, or media, whether it's books, things like that, that you can check out that you, you want to highlight. I love Atlanta. I mean, I yeah. think that that's one of my favorite shows in terms of writing and in terms of like characters and everything, because you, the, when you watch the pilot, you go in and expecting one thing, but I, I, heard, I read somebody describe it as like a Trojan horse pilot. <laughs> the pilot is deceptive because it makes you think that the series is something that it's not. And as you progressively watch the series, you start to realize that what you thought you were getting into is not what you got into at all. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, even for me, I think just something that I, I think a lot of people don't do nowadays is a lot of people are, cannot cannot just sit down and be able to have a conversation and i think that's a problem that's going on today is like the moment that a certain topic of this, this certain topic is brought up people are just so quick to anger so like my advice to anybody is just really just go out and educate yourself on just anything you possibly can about the situation but having having a form of conversation with your friends you know what i mean like me and tony we've had talks all the time but there's sometimes even like, and I'm just going to use that can't even sense, but use the term like the black experience. Like, especially in the industry, there's things that Tony has dealt with being darker skin than I've dealt with being lighter skin. And mm-hmm. we've spoken about it in great length. And mm-hmm. every once in a while, I'll go back and I'll read an article and I'm like, hey, Tony, I'll send him a link. Hey, did you read about this? And he's like, oh yeah. man, I didn't know that. But, you know, like, I, I encourage everybody just get out there, watch those films like um, The Color Purple, watch Do the Right Thing, watch Bamboo, watch Don't Be a Menace. But you don't even know more at the same time. Read, but read, read open-mindedly. Watch things open-mindedly, and actually have the conversations. Like ask the questions. I feel like there's not a lot of conversation around. Like yeah, we're doing a lot of stuff. We're doing a lot of movies, a lot of films, a lot of TV shows, and stuff like that. But we're also doing it to engage as part of conversation, and the conversation needs to happen. Right. So I wouldn't just I wouldn't pinpoint and pick. I mean, there's there's a list of things I can pinpoint and pick from. So I don't want to pick one specific thing. For me, I'm just kind of saying like, hey, like everybody should get out there and read about different things and, you know, get those ideas and, and have those conversations because that's really the only way you're going to learn. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Mm. Um, um, yeah, go for it. No, it's okay. Go for it. I went, I went for it last time. It's all you, buddy. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I actually really enjoyed watching um, The Watchmen uh, HBO TV show. Oh, so good. That show was so good. That was so good. They're not doing another season. They're not doing another season? No, yeah, they dropped it. Yeah. How on earth can they drop it, especially after that cliffhanger at the end? Really? My sister saw it. I didn't see it. And I was getting ready to watch it. And then my sister's like, they're not renewing it for season two. I'm like, but everybody was freaking out about it. She's like, I know. So I think maybe that's why I didn't watch it. Because for me, I like to be able to have a couple of seasons on the show and I didn't binge it. Yeah. You yeah, know, you know, like, you know, you know, like, I do like three seasons in like a weekend and I'm like, I'm gay kind of thing. You know what I mean? But did, I heard did was, you watch, I heard did, did you watch the original, the Watchmen movie or read the graphic? Oh, of course. Yeah. I can't. You were in it. Um, I just, I mean, I love, I love the, the graphic novel. I really liked the movie and I thought that they just like took everything that was great about the subject, like the material and just, 
um, ran with it in this totally vital and like useful conversation about um, friggin like the police and um, violence, uh, systemic violence against black people in the United States, specifically Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is insane that the Trump rallies happen. Like it's just, it's, um, but like there's this, there's this one uh, episode. It's like one of the last episodes. The whole thing is like this fever dream. Do you remember that? Yep. Yeah, it, it's when, because she takes the pill and it gives her her grandfather's memories. Uh, yeah, her grandfather who survived the Tulsa race riot. Well, one of the like one of the best episodes of television I think I've seen in a while. What were you going to say, Tony? No, no, no. I was agreeing with you. Yeah, and, and I think it was the first time I saw the movie. I think it was a beautiful Dakota. I can remember. Maybe I think yeah. it was in Red. I watched it in Dakota's Red. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but like, there's there's a part at the very end of the of the series. Here I want to go again, like wanting to ruin things. I just love endings. Um, but like, uh, uh, basically, like the 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 main character and her grandfather are like sitting in this movie theater, and uh, the movie theater has a lot of resonance um, because of the way that the the show starts. And he, Lou Gossett Jr., has this monologue that um, is about his evolution as a policeman and as a black policeman. Mm-hmm. And it, it it brings tears to my eyes every single damn time because I've, I don't know if I've ever heard someone express um, a realization of what was actually going on inside them of pain and hurt better mm-hmm. than that, than mm-hmm. that monologue. Um, and if you, if you didn't understand why people are angry right now, um, you know, there's tons of documentaries that you can watch, but if, if you want a bit of, um, entertainment while doing so, like watch Watchmen on HBO, it's it's really, really, uh, I have to check it out. Well, awesome guys. I think this was a terrific roundtable discussion. I really appreciate all four of you coming on before we leave. I love for, for you to either shout out or talk about anything you want right now. I, I cede the floor to you all. I'll say this, educate yourself, read books, read books by black revolutionaries, um, or getting on the bandwagon of any kind of political movement, whether it's deep on the police or, um, reform the police or whatever just do your own research to formulate your own ideas and also if you're going to support a local organization in toronto i would support the black legal action center Um, they're absolutely amazing the women who work there are incredible and dedicated and committed to helping the black people in this community so there and uh, if you want to follow me on instagram and twitter my instagram is uh at underscore Muna M O U N A Traore T R A O R E, and that's the same as my Twitter. I'm gonna jump actually jump on that because you just said it too, and it kind of goes to um, a kind of point that I was making before. Um, definitely educate yourselves, read up on not even necessarily just the Black experience, read up on the experience of any cultural group or religious group or sexual identity group, whatever. Just read up on any injustice, really develop your own thought. But at the same time, the important thing is reach out to those friends of yours from those groups and be like, hey, you know, I was reading up on this. Can we have a discussion about it? Because I have some questions. Because I guarantee you that'll really change their mind frame. Be like, hey, you know what? 
this person is really taking an interest in something that's affecting me, that's showing a, a greater level of friendship, and that I'm more appreciative of that. And I guarantee you, the one I want, the one I talk to more about it, explain how they feel. And then the conversation, more importantly, is what needs to happen nowadays, especially with our generation, because we're more open. We have so many, so much access to information. Um, you can you can literally Google, type in the dumbest sentence on Google, and you'll get 15 suggested <laughs> articles, right? So educate yourself and but be willing to have those open-minded conversations and i think that's really what's going to like really change circumstances um and in terms of like support support any foundation or any cause where you know your support's actually going to help that group or that 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 body of people because everybody needs help right now and because everybody needs help they're not going to get help unless we're actually willing to give that help and then I'm going to do my own shameless plug. If you want to follow me on Instagram or Twitter, uh, my username is DJ Jarvis. That's both for Instagram and Twitter. And I'm the type of person, hey, send me a DM. Let's talk. One thing I'd like to say is uh, shout out Obsidian Theater. Um, you stole mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, we're sharing. We're sharing. <laughs> like Obsidian Philip, Philip Aiken, he, he saved my life. Um, I went to theater school not knowing what my voice was going to be or wh- how I would belong in this world uh, of this of the arts, um, theater or film. Um, I didn't feel like I belonged. I I was the black kid from the hood in theater school that everybody thought was weird because I listened to music where the word rhymed and they said fuck every other word um and um i had to sit there and listen to shakespeare and other uh, words from other white people that was cool but i was really hoping i didn't have to build my career um articulating the feelings of 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 white people and then one class I learned about Obsidian Theater and we only spoke about it once and I took that and I ran, I did my research, I found out about uh, the works they were doing. Uh, the first play I saw from them was Ruined and it was so beautiful, like I I was shaking by the end of it and um, it, it was the first time I'd, I'd ever heard, heard a story um, uh, where I could see myself um, on stage um, and it was beautiful and uh, if it wasn't for Obsidian my my, uh, my creative drive would have been shot and um, yeah Obsidian really gave me a place of belonging so um, please and I mean besides all of my personal feelings towards it like Obsidian um, really uh, put an emphasis on putting black work on stage before it became like um, be- before it became a thing where every theater uh, in Toronto uh, wants to add at least one black show to their program to show diversity. Obsidian was on that, like making space for um, black artists to tell stories um, that they heard growing up or. Um, uh, like speak about their their darkest insecurities in front of people that would understand that also have these dark insecurities. So thank you, Obsidian. 
um, guys, donate um, to Obsidian. Um, make sure that they have the funding to keep putting on these great works um, that tell our stories beyond like slavery, um, beyond like um, absent fathers, um, and more like stories that get us to think about us as a people, us as a society, where we've been and where we're going. Please donate. Please pay attention to these like um, artists that Obsidian uh, are producing and and um, allowing to teach us. Um, and please pay attention to the amazing directors that they're um, uh, bringing on and uh, sharing their experiences with us. Um, and also follow me because I'm also an amazing black young artist in Toronto um, telling my stories um, that I think can move uh, people that either have never had the chance to see themselves represented on stage or have a lot of questions. Um, so follow me on Instagram. My name is Tony Ofori. Instagram, Tony underscore Ofori. You can find me on any platform under that. Go donate. Donate to the black um, um, black initiatives because we are we are trying to start something of our own rather than um, picking up off the crumbs of what's left. Yeah, Sydney is extraordinary. They've been around for twenty years, I believe. And um, yeah, like like uh, like Tony. So uh, my I I was part of their um, playwrights unit a number of years ago, and it was. Uh, one of the first times that somebody took an interest in my voice uh, and my writing, and um, uh, from from my perspective, and wanted to, to tease that out. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's an extraordinary place. Um, I also want to highlight uh, B Inc. B Inc. Uh, is is part of B Current, um, uh, and um, B Current, you know, similar to uh, Obsidian, has been. Uh, putting forward uh, the voices of people of the black diaspora um, uh, for Adri, I think started it decades ago, I think around the same time actually. Um, and uh, be, if you run uh, a company, uh, if you uh, organize a team, if you manage a team, um, uh, you hire B Inc, spend money on B Inc to come and, and um, do anti-racism training. Uh, and and uh, change the way that your organization um, hires uh, people of color, uh, promotes people of color, does business with people of color, um, and 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 make your organization uh, on the on the vanguard of something that um, is is hopefully going to change the world. Um, so be Inc. Uh, and um, also, I won't give any of my social media stuff because I don't. I'm <laughs> not much of a social media guy, but um, I will get somebody else's, and that's um, a woman named Brittany Packness, uh, and she is uh, she's a social justice leader, educator, organizer, public um, public speaker in the state. She's one of Times' uh, twelve new faces of Black leadership. Um, Barack Obama thinks she's amazing. Uh, and she has been one of the main people that I've been following in this time to, to know what do I need to think about? What are some of the, um, uh, strategies that I should research? Um, she, she, uh, put forward this eight can't wait campaign, uh, which are eight, uh, eight strategies to tackle, uh, police violence. 
Uh, and uh, yeah, so you can follow her on all the different platforms. Her name is Brittany Packnett. That's P A C K N E. Definitely. I'm going to check her out. Well, Muna, Tony, Jerome, Sebastian, I want to thank all of you so much for, for coming on and sharing your stories and your experiences. I really appreciate it. Amazing. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you, Dakota. Thank you, Dakota. Music hitting your heart, cause I know you got a soul. Listen if you're missing y'all, swinging while I'm singing. Giving what you're getting, knowing what I'm knowing. While the black band's sweating, in the rhythm I'm rolling. Gotta give us what we want, gotta give us what we need. Our freedom of speech is freedom of death. We got to fight the powers that be. Fight the power. Fight the power. Fight the power. Once again, I want to thank Sebastian Hines, Muna Chare, Tony Ofori, and Jerome Jarvis for joining the show and sharing their stories. ContraZoom Pod has made a donation to all the organizations mentioned in the last segment, and I encourage listeners to do the same. There will be links in the show notes of where to donate, along with in my link tree on Instagram. ContraZoom Pod is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. I'd like to thank Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. Follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. We're your favorite pieces of black media that you want to share with everyone. Email us at ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. It would be a great help if you would rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts as it will help us grow and find new listeners. Black lives matter, trans lives matter, people of color lives matter, and indigenous lives matter. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.